Everybody doing all right? Thank you for being here on site today. By the way, thank you guys for watching us online today. It's interesting. We live in a time now where uh, on site and online are blending together and community is community and that's totally cool. I'm glad we have the uh, technology. But we do appreciate your being here. We appreciate all your support. Um, we're able to do what we do. We're able to serve each other. We're able to serve our community because of that support. So thank you very much. So we are in the fifth week of our series called Recovery Road. This is the next to last week. So it would be the penultimate week. Wow, that's a 10 cent word, right? So here's what we're doing. For the last few weeks during the series, we've been talking about what's going on in our world and how we, as God's people, people who've recognized the sin nature with which we are all born, that, that human nature that drives us toward our selfishness, the selfish sin, that human nature that we can't fix on our own, so it requires a savior to redeem us. We're, we're people who, understanding that, have recognized that notwithstanding our inherent sinfulness, God loves us anyway. And out of his love for us, he's made a way for us to be connected forever to him by sending Jesus, God the Son, who lived the perfect life. And then who, when the time was right, allowed himself to go to the cross. And now if we understand that while Jesus was on the cross, God put all of our sins on him. All of our sins, past, present, and future. So that when he died, our sins were paid for. He was the final sacrifice. But he was put into the tomb and three days later, he rose from the dead. And then after seeing hundreds of people, he ascended to heaven. He promised to return one day to usher in God's kingdom here on earth. And if you are a follower of his, that means you've devoted your life to his lordship. You've turned from the way that you were. You've accepted from him the gift of eternal life. And now you're eternally connected to him. And if you're one of those people, God has called you to respond to the stuff that's going on in the world. So today I want to begin with a little bit of a challenge, a little bit of a quiz. I'm going to show you a political quote, and I want you to try to guess which politician said it. Okay, ready? Here we go. The budget should be balanced. The treasury should be refilled. Public debt should be reduced. The arrogance of the officialdom should be tempered and controlled. And the assistance to foreign lands should be curtailed lest we become bankrupt. People must again learn to work instead of living on public assistance. All right. Anybody want to tell me who wrote that? JFK. All right. We got a JFK, George Washington, Barack Obama. Anybody? All right. Ready for it? Here it was. It was the statesman, lawyer, scholar, philosopher, and academic skeptic Cicero in Rome in 55 A uh, BC, 55 BC. Wow, isn't it funny? No matter how sophisticated and advanced we think we are, there is nothing new under the sun. Isn't that crazy? So our theme throughout this series has been that contrary to what we hear, the problems we're facing in America today don't originate with them, with those other people. We don't have a them problem. We have an us problem. See, our problems start with we. Our problem starts with me. Remember what Pogo said? We've seen the enemy and 
He is us. Yeah, as we've alluded to earlier, one of the ways we can get out of our current situation is by getting our finances under control. Because our national financial system is a mess. Here's some chilling statistics. Actually, it's kind of depressed me when I was looking them up. Our total government debt now is $28.3 trillion. Now, we've become a bit disconnected from the magnitude of that number, but we have to remember that even though million, billion, and trillion kind of go together, they kind of rhyme, they kind of sing song, they sound deceptively similar. Do you realize a billion is a thousand times more than a million? And a trillion is a thousand times more than a billion? I mean, it's just the numbers are astronomical. $28.3 trillion is an astounding amount of money. And someday in the future, our descendants, whether they're our children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren, are going to be required to pay that back. But there's more. On an annual basis, the federal government will run a $3 trillion deficit by the end of fiscal year 2021. That means that when our accounting year ends, the U.S. will run $3 trillion short in its budget. Now imagine if we do this every year. That would be, it'd be kind of like, and this is not a great comparison, but it'll work a little bit. It would be like if, if we, on top of whatever we make at our jobs, were running up a credit card bill of oh, $150,000 a year. Like imagine if we did that. How long would you be able to survive? How long would you be able to stay in your house to keep food on the table, to keep the AC running, if you were running that kind of deficit. I mean, we wouldn't be able to sustain that for very long, and neither can our country. So we ask ourselves the question, what caused this massive amount of debt that our nation has accumulated? And it might surprise you to know that the debt wasn't caused by a lack of money. Isn't that weird? A lack of money is not the cause. Our country doesn't have a money problem. Our country has a spending problem. We are in a spending crisis. And that's what we're going to be talking about. See, by all measures, the United States is still the most prosperous nation in the world. But we have abused our prosperity. And, and here's the interesting thing. There's very little likelihood that our country is ever going to fix this until it absolutely has to. And that's the way people work, too. Over the years, I've counseled lots of people, countless people, who found themselves in terrible situations, by the way, all of their own doing, but they've chosen to do nothing until, until either their health or their wealth has caused them to take action. When it comes to nations, health and wealth are the same thing. They're interchangeable. So it follows that in much the same way that people don't typically change their behavior until change is the only thing left, our nation won't address our health problem and our wealth problem until it absolutely has to as well. So let's take a moment and turn our focus to the way that we as God's people can influence our nation to recover financially. We can do something about it. But first, let's pray again. Heavenly Father, thank you again for gathering us together. Thank you for giving us your word. As we uh, look at some of the scriptures, we ask that you would use them, use your word to open our hearts and minds, to draw us closer to you, draw us away from our 
human tendency to divide and argue. Bring us into your family closer. Hold us tight so that we can be that city on the hill for the lost around us. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to start off by, by telling you about the way that years ago that I, I want to call it, recovered financially. Because you don't have to do what I do, and I don't want to talk about myself like that, but I think that some of the principles I followed can also translate to a national recovery. You see, before I met Jesus, I would say that I had a very standard relationship with money. And what I mean by that is this. I went to school, I trained for the career that I wanted, and then when the time was right, when the training was over, whatever, I interviewed for a position in my chosen field, and my number one criterion for a job was which law firm was going to pay me the most. That's all I cared about. I looked at the number that they were paying, and then I went backwards and saw who they were and where they were located. By the way, the second criterion I had for looking was which law firm would make me the, a partner the quickest, which is essentially the same thing, because partners made more money. So really, that was, I just had one reason to make the money. Now, during the fall of my last year in law school, I got hired, which was really cool, by the way, because I had pretty much the whole last year of law school to goof off, and it was nice. But I was hired by a firm here in, in town in Boca Raton. I didn't even know where Boca was at the time, but got hired here. They offered me an acceptable amount, and I said, all right, I'll take the job. But for the record, it was in a field that I was totally uninterested in, disinterested in, but it didn't matter because it met my job criterion. It paid well. So I took the job, and I loved it. No, I didn't. I hated it. I hated every minute of it. I ran into... Um, the partner I used to work for uh, just last week, first time I've seen him in, it's got to be 25 years, and it was reminded of this all over again. So here it is, I'm telling you. But then, using my same tried and true criteria, I looked for another job. And I hated it too. And it was during my time at that job that I can vividly recall staring in the men's room mirror at my rapidly aging face. That is not me, it's just a facsimile, okay? And I remember thinking, this job is going to kill me. I look ancient. I look like I'm in my 30s. That's what I remember thinking. Yeah, boy, <laughs> wish I could go back to ancient. And I thought, I'm going to die here, but at least it pays well. Then I got another job. Hated it, too. Paid better. You're beginning to see a pattern here. Yeah, that's my pattern. But it was at that job that I met Jesus. And by God's grace, my understanding of the world began to shift. And by the way, I've been kind of talking about this recently because it's kind of neat. I have adult children, and they're, you know, they're rapidly, of course, getting older. And I'm watching them kind of change the way they look at the world, too. And as they get older, they're definitely moderating a bit, and they're beginning to understand the world a little bit. And I'm like, wow, that's really fun to watch because, you know, I had to go through that, too. But when I got saved, when I became a follower of Jesus, I realized I had a larger and more significant role to play in the world. God had given me an assignment. God had sent me on a quest, and I promised him that I would always listen to his calling. Well, I learned that Jesus, God the Son, called all of his people, that's me and that's you guys, to love him, to love God and to love other people. And then to witness for him, to tell other people about the things that God has done and that God was doing in my life. And then to make disciples, to walk alongside of anyone else who had committed their lives to Jesus as well 
and help them to draw closer to him. Now, not having grown up around any other followers of Jesus, I didn't know how to do any of that. So I knew that was the call, but I had no clue how to execute it. So I started learning everything that I could. And one of the first things that I learned about was how God instructs the believer to manage his or her money. And it turns out I could not have chosen a better place to start. Now, Beth and I, my wife and I, took a course called Crown Financial Ministries. I think they're still out there, but they're certainly not what they were back in the day. Crown, back then, was a 12-week small group study about personal finances. Now, anybody heard of Dave Ramsey? Yeah, okay, so a bunch of you have. Okay, so Dave Ramsey actually learned what he learned. He's a financial guru and a Christian financial advisor, and he learned all that stuff from Crown Ministries. Crown Ministries has been around a very long time. That's where he learned the biblical principles, and of course, Dave's been teaching those things for more than 20 years now. Anyway, Beth and I had been married a short while at this point. We'd been Christians an even shorter while, but we wanted to do things the right way. And now, Beth had a pretty good business background, which, you know, not everybody marries a person with a good business background, but she was a systems analyst and has her MBA, and, and I worked with numbers in my practice, and that was not good to help us know how to handle our home money. Neither of us knew the first thing about God's plan when it came to money. And then we met a man by the name of Bruce. Bruce Haupt was his name, and he was our crown leader. And he taught us so many things in that course. And I've used so many of the things he's taught me to this day. Bruce was actually the first person to tell me that he had never met an ex-tither. Now, in the 20 years since I was in his crown group, I have never met an ex-tither either. Another thing he told us would end up being one of the most impactful things I'd heard or I've ever heard even to this day. Because when we got on the topic of debt, whether it was credit card debt or some other kind of consumer debt, Bruce told us that there are two kinds of people in the world, people who pay interest and people who make interest. He said that if we wanted to make a big impact in the kingdom of God, we needed to become people who make interest, not people who pay interest. Now, that night, we decided that's what we want to be. Now, by that time, I have to say, thanks again to my wife, we'd already begun eliminating my student loan debt, our credit card debt, and we were working on paying off our car debt, our car loans. And we continued to do that. And once we got that debt out of the way, it took a while, but we paid it off. We began working on the mortgage on our home. And then we did something that, frankly, I never even realized was a thing, let alone a thing I'd ever considered doing. After we had all that done, we became tithers. We decided from that moment on, when we received money, whether it was from salary or from bonuses or from fees, we would give 10% of that money, gross, not net, in case you're wondering, to the ministry of the church. And then we'd take another portion, we'd put that aside for savings, and then we would live on whatever was left. In other words, we decided to live within our means and be generous at the same time. We decided that this was how we were going to live our lives, and we have been doing that ever since. We were going to be the people that make interest, not pay interest. Now, I fully recognize that that is not the way most people live. It is not typical. And, and candidly, living like that is not without its challenges, 
here's what I mean by that. As you might imagine, when you live this way, you can't have everything you want when you want it. You can't have the things that you can't afford, and you have to learn to say no. You have to learn to say no yourself. You have to learn to say no to the people in your family, your spouse, your children. Now, the second problem with it is this. You can't even have everything that you can afford. Okay, so you can't have everything you can't afford. And you also can't have everything you can afford. Years ago, I had a really profitable year. Not in the ministry, okay? But it enabled me to make a very generous gift to the church. And so one afternoon I was chatting with my brother and we were talking about our charitable giving. And yes, my brother and I talk about weird things like charitable giving. And he told me how his company, works for a really big company, was having a United Way fund drive, a fundraising drive, and he wrote a check that he felt was quite substantial. So I mentioned my tithe that I had just made, and he got really quiet. And there was this really pregnant pause. And after a few seconds, he said, do you realize what you could have bought for yourself with that money? And I said, no, I had no idea. No, of course. I said, of course I realize what I could have bought for myself. But that was a choice I made when I began to follow Jesus. And, and I have a similar moment and a similar feeling every time I run into a, a friend, an acquaintance, a contemporary living in a bigger house than I live in or living in a better neighborhood than I live in or driving a nicer car or taking better vacations. I still get that, wow, I could have done that feeling. But when you choose to live like that, sometimes you can't even have the things that you can afford. Third problem is this. To live like this, you have to stick to a budget. Ugh. Who likes to stick to a budget? I know there are a couple of you that do. But, hmm, that doesn't need much explanation, though. Budgets are real simple. Don't spend money you don't have. Don't spend money you didn't plan to spend. That's what a budget is. All right, fourth problem. When the money runs out, you stop spending. Now, by the way, this is what we did. I'm not telling you to do anything. You don't have to listen to me. In fact, very few people listen to me, okay? Don't worry about it. Most people won't live like this because in America, most people don't have to live like this. In America, we've become a nation of creditors, a nation of people who borrow money. Do you know that as of this moment, Americans owe a total of $14.9 trillion in consumer debt? $14.9 trillion. Mortgages, home equity loans, auto loans, credit cards, student loans. That's a lot of money. But in America, credit is so freely extended that we all feel like we have great freedom to put ourselves in significant debt to others. When I was in college, I was amazed by how free credit was, how freely credit was available. I was amazed by how easy it was to get a credit card. When I went off to college, I didn't have a credit card. My parents didn't give me one of their credit cards. I gave my boys one of ours. My parents didn't give me one, and I certainly couldn't have qualified for one. I had negative money. I had loans. I couldn't have qualified for one on my own, so I thought. But much to my happy surprise, all over campus, almost all the time, there were credit card companies who were offering free stuff if you'd sign up for a credit card, free T-shirts. 
Now, as a broke college student, that's your favorite kind of T-shirt, a free T-shirt. They're speaking my language, and they knew it. I probably had half a dozen credit cards when I graduated college and half a dozen free T-shirts in my drawer from all my signing up for the credit cards. Little did I know I was being groomed. I was being groomed for my future as a borrower because America is a borrower's nation. A credit card allows you to obtain money. A credit card allows you to borrow money that you haven't yet earned and spend it on things you want now, whether or not you can afford it. I'm not gonna lie. That was the coolest, most grown-up thing in the world to me when I got my first credit card. But there's a problem with that approach. Eventually, your credit runs out, and the minimum payment keeps going up and up. And then, if you experience any financial bump in the road, whether it's a job loss or an illness or a maxed out line of credit, then the reality of the borrower's world comes crashing in. When you run out of credit, the game is over. When you run out of credit, you realize that one, you can't have everything you want when you want it. And then you realize that you can't even have everything you used to be able to afford because you now have to take a step backwards. And it is very painful when we have to go backwards in life. I have a physician friend who hit this point a few years ago and he had to trade in his brand new German luxury car for a used Ford Taurus. If you drive a Taurus, no problem. But for him, that three years that he drove that Taurus, he was the saddest person I'd ever met. He used to ride around in his German luxury car and he was top down enjoying life when he got into that Ford Taurus, which looked like a government issue car, or perhaps a poor rental upgrade. He was just miserable. When you, when you run out of money, when the credit stops, you can't even afford the things you used to be able to afford. Third thing is, when you run out of credit, to go forward, you need to start living on a budget again. And if you weren't interested in living on a budget in the first place to avoid incurring debt, the notion of living on a budget to get out of debt is even more undesirable. And then fourth, when your credit runs out, you, you have to stop spending. You have no choice but to quit spending. So by saying these two things, choosing to live on a budget before you need to or being forced to live on a budget after the credit runs out, Hopefully you've noticed that the things you have to do when you run out of credit are the same things you have to do when you decide to live as a lender and not a borrower. They're the same things that you have to do when you've decided to live within your means so that you can give first, save second, and live on the rest. So what are the differences? Well, people ask the question, why would I live within my means if it's the same thing? If I'm going to end up in the same place, why not just keep on borrowing? And that's what our government kind of feels like it's supposed to do. Well, one difference is when it's your decision to live on a budget, you have control. You have control over your life. But when you've been borrowing, guess what? Someone else has control over your life. Another difference is when you decide to live according to your means, if you want more, you know what you have to do. You have to make more. When you're living on credit, if you want more, that's too bad. You can't get more. You actually have to make more just to pay for the stuff you already have that you regret buying. And finally, when you've decided to live within your means, you can still plan for your future. 
when you're living on credit, before you can give any thought to your future, you have to clean up the mistakes you made in your past. When you decide to live within your means, when you encounter a financial difficulty, it's very easy to switch into recovery mode, to recover. But when you're living on credit, even the slightest bump, even the slightest financial challenge, and you're in trouble. Well, right now, guess what? We're in trouble. America's in trouble. We hit a bump in the road. We're in the midst of a burgeoning financial challenge. Over the next, I'm afraid, months and years, we're going to be hurting. <clears throat> we're already on a road to financial ruin with the debt. And COVID <clears throat> turned that road to ruin into a rocket's path to ruin. It just sped everything up. And the challenge we're facing as a nation that could have been a manageable, manageable challenge is now an existential crisis from which we need to recover. Today, as a nation, we're beginning to realize we can't have everything we want. We're beginning to realize we, you can't have cheap gas, fully funded entitlements, universal health care, free college, gigantic military, and a worldwide military presence. You can't have all of that and keep spending and spending and spending. We're realizing, as a nation, we can't have everything we want. And furthermore, we're beginning to see that we can't even have everything we used to be able to afford. There's no more money available for bailouts or handouts. There's no more money available for necessary and desired social services. And we can't just keep on printing money in a, an attempt to spend our way out of debt. Just saying it out loud sounds silly, doesn't it? But we actually need is a budget, and then we need to live on, we need to agree to live on that budget. But you know something? We can't even agree on a budget in America, much less live on that budget. So coming up with a vile, a vile, a viable national budget seems like a, a pipe dream or a fantasy. And finally, the fourth realization that we're coming around to as a nation is we need to stop. We need to stop spending. When the money runs out, the spending has to stop. We've never done that. We've never done that as a nation. We've merely normalized what we call deficit spending. You've all heard it. That's just spending money that we don't have, either by printing more of it, which leads to inflation, or by borrowing it from someone else, which leads to more debt. And the way our political system is set up, nobody's bold enough to stop it. Because if you stop it, if you stop sending money as a politician to your home district, you're not going to get elected the next time. You all depressed yet? Good, let's pray. <laughs> Hang in there. There's a point. Now, of course, our nation's economy is far more sophisticated than a household economy, and there are no simple solutions, and we recognize that. But the fact remains, as a nation, we've hit a huge bump, and we need to do something different if we want to recover. And the thing that is so tragic about this is that, unlike other nations, our money actually has on it, has printed on it, a foolproof recovery plan. Can you guess what it is? We saw it last week. Our money has instructions on it, has instructions written right on the money. And those instructions should remind us of whom has, who and whom has ultimate control over our lives. Who is that? God. Very good. You church people, very spiritual. Yes, God. Written on our money is our national motto, in God we trust. We talked about that. So if we really believe our motto to be true, we ought to be able to recover from the mess that is currently besetting America. 
Now, how do we do that? Well, by understanding what God has said about the way that his people are to handle and manage the resources that he's provided for them. Now, in both the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and the New Testament, God has a lot to say about money. I've told you guys before, God says 2,350 things about money. He says more about money than prayer and praise and thanksgiving put together. God has said so much about money if only we paid attention. If we'd paid attention, our individual lives would be markedly better. And if our nation would pay attention, we wouldn't be stuck in the situation we're stuck in today. So let's take the last few minutes here to take a look at what God has said. So we're going to start way back in the beginning, way back in the Torah. And we learn about in the Torah that God entered into the realm of nation building. God chose a nation, Israel. He chose a people group to be his people. And the people he chose had no law. And they had no rules. And they had no culture outside of their slave culture. But that's who God chose to be his nation. So about 3,400 years ago, God shepherded these people who had for hundreds of years known only life as slaves in Egypt, and he guided them out of Egypt and guided them toward their own country, the land that he had promised them, the promised land. And along the way, God gave them rules that they would need to be successful. Now, much of what God said to Israel had to do with how he would have them handle their money and their finances. Isn't that interesting? God's telling his people who are not yet a nation, who don't yet have a culture, if you want to have a nation, here's how you have to handle your money. God was well aware of the fact that as money goes, so the nation goes. Jesus would later say the same thing when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you're in love with money, that's where your heart is. If you're in love with God, that's where your heart should be. Our checkbooks and credit card statements reveal far more about the condition of our hearts toward God than does our church attendance. So now let's take a look at a few verses that reflect God's desire when it came to his nation, Israel, borrowing and lending money which guidance in the early days of America, our founders actually adhered to. So we're going to start with God's promise to Israel as he was establishing them as a nation. So we go to Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So Old Testament, Torah, Deuteronomy 28.12. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty. God promised that he would pour out his bounty, his, his generous gifts, upon his people Israel. All right, so let's keep going. To send rain on your land in season and to bless all the work of your hands. God promised to bless his people. He promised to bless their crops with ample rain so the crops could grow healthy. He promised to bless their work with quality and value. And then God said to them, let me summarize. Let me show you how prosperous your nation will be. He said this, You will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. God told his people that they would lend to many nations. By saying this, God was saying that if his people remained obedient, 
they would be well-to-do. They would thrive. That as a nation, they would have extra. They would have leftover. They would have margin. And as a result of having this extra and having this margin, the surrounding nations would come to Israel for loans. And Israel would be a nation that makes interest, not a nation that pays interest. They would be known as a blessed nation because they would be a wealthy nation. And blessed, wealthy nations don't need to borrow money. Now, in the past, in America, we used to think that a lack of debt was a sign of wealth as well. Back in the day, as the kids like to say, I know that when I say that, my kids are going to go, Dad, don't say that. But back in the day, it was well known that the wealthier you were, the less likely it was you would have any debt. Right? That makes sense, right? I mean, if you have money, why would you have debt? Rich nations and rich people had plenty of money. They didn't need to borrow more, right? Rich people didn't have debt. And not only that, back in the day when a middle class or a lower class or a poor person wanted something, they didn't have debt either. They didn't go into debt either. Debt was an indication that one's life wasn't working out very well. Debt was an indication that one had not handled their finances as well as they could have up until that time. Debt was still considered bad back then. But somewhere along the way, our national thinking changed because now we're a place where wealthy people love debt. In fact, it's common to see today that the wealthier you are, the more debt you have, the more money you owe. It's very common now to take your assets and use them to leverage yourself so you can actually take on more debt. It's quite common, it's quite normal to carry debt. Today, the more money, the more assets you control, whether it's cash or whether it's real estate or whether it's assets or property in your name, the more stuff you have, the more you can borrow, the more you can leverage. And as for the middle class and the poor folks, as well as the young, it's turned out to be the same thing. Newly minted high school and college graduates are able to take out debt. Lenders have figured out how to make everybody take on debt by offering risky loans in the late 2000s that led to the financial meltdown back then, and by making high interest and long, long, long-term credit card, or long, long, long-term car leases and car purchases available today. Our world continues to encourage that behavior. You ever go to a car, to, uh, go to a car dealer to buy a used car, and you get the salesperson, and he says to you, why would you buy a used car? You can have a new one for only $1,000 down and a few hundred dollars a month for the next, do you know how long car loans go for now? Seven years. Seven years. My dad used to trade his car in every two years. Seven years. But that's what they say. $1,000 down, reasonable amount a month. You can get the car that you want today, even though you can't afford it in any way. Debt is not any longer an indication that things aren't going well. Debt's just a way that we rich Americans do things. That's completely backwards. What was once bad, debt, is now considered good. And what was once good, no debt, owing no one, is considered bad. Tell somebody you paid off your house and have them look at you like you're crazy. But it's catching up with us now. It's catching up with us individually and as a nation. So the change begs a fundamental question. Why? Why was God so insistent that his nation be a nation that loans and not borrows? Why was that important to God? Well, it's important because God knew something about debt that eventually we'll all learn one way or another. 
Eventually, we'll all come to the same conclusion about debt that God warned us about about 3,000 years ago in Proverbs 22.7. The wisest man who ever lived, King Solomon, said this. The rich will rule over the poor. This is a fact. The rich rule over the poor. Now, in the days of equity, does it seem fair? No, it doesn't. It's not fair. But who said life was fair? It's a truth. It's a cold, hard truth. The cold, hard truth is the rich will always have an advantage over the poor. Solomon continued. And the borrower, which in the old days was the poor person, is a slave to the lender, which in the old days was the rich person. God said to Israel, God says to me, God says to you, if you owe, you become a slave to the person who loaned you the money. And when you owe, you can't live a full life. You can't live your life to the full. When you owe, you can't exercise the control over your life that you want to exercise. When you owe, you can't make your own choices about what you want and what you don't want. When you owe, someone else is always telling you how they want you to live, how they're requiring you to live. And God, who loved his nation Israel, God, who loves us too, doesn't want that for us. Even if we take on our debt voluntarily, when all is said and done, we still become a slave to the lender. You ever loan money to somebody and then you watch everything they do in their life? And then you comment to your spouse or to your roommate or whoever's with you and you go, well, I loaned them $1,000 and look what they're doing. They're going out to dinner. Huh? Did they really need that new shirt? Huh? I mean, that's what you do. We don't think about it like that. But when we live with debt, as it increases, the joy in our life decreases. And today we find ourselves in America staring into this abyss. We're staring into this black hole. We have no idea what to expect next. Our economy is sort of teetering right now. Our national debt is hanging over our heads like the proverbial sword of Damocles. It could drop any time, threatening to bring pain and disaster in our lives. We don't like to think about it, but we all know it's there. We are the most blessed and prosperous nation in the history of the world. And yet, we couldn't resist the temptation to leverage our future and the future of our children and the future of our grandchildren just to buy stuff we couldn't afford today. So what do we do? Still depressing. Is all hope lost? Are we doomed to the dustbin of history? Another failed empire? No, not at all. There's hope. There's hope for us individually if we're willing to return to God's directives and climb out of that borrower hole until we can stand on the solid ground upon which the debt-free stand. See, if we will do that in our individual lives, then we'll begin to experience the hope, the hope that God offers his people. And if we'll do that in our individual lives, we'll find ourselves on the road to recovery. How do we get started with that? Well, there's lots of ways to get started. I cannot encourage you all enough. You've got debt out there. You need to start working on knocking it down. Now, one of the most effective ways would be by nowadays signing up for Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. Has anybody ever heard of Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University? Oh, you, so you guys have. Okay. If you're interested in signing up, we will get some... Dave Ramsey uh, classes going, you please email me at info at hammockstreetchurch.com and we'll get you signed up. We'll get a course ready to go. I will tell you what, it'll change your life. 
I'll tell you what, five years after you take the Dave Ramsey course, you're gonna say, wow, am I glad I took the Dave Ramsey course. I mean, it's really life-changing. One of the most satisfying days of my life was the day that following the same principles Dave teaches, we got rid of our last debt that we had and it allowed us to freely follow the calling that God put on our lives. It allowed us to come here. When, when we were introduced to the idea of becoming a ministry family, we were looking for another house. We were getting ready to upgrade again. And uh, we were looking at some neighborhoods that I'm real thankful that I didn't move into. Not because they weren't great neighborhoods, they were, but I wouldn't be able to afford them anymore. But if you're no longer enslaved by the lender, hope abounds. And as for our nation, you know what? We have national hope too. But it's not going to be easy. Just like it's not easy for individuals to get out of debt, it's not easy for nations to get out of debt. And if we want our nation to get out of debt, we're going to need to elect some Nehemiahs to represent us in D.C. If you don't know what that reference is, please check out week three's message in this series, and you'll get the reference. But we need that kind of politician who I've just called a Nehemiah, who is no longer willing to sacrifice the next generation for the sake of this generation. We need to start electing people who are going to rise above petty politics, rise above party politics, who are going to take the necessary steps and are going to accept the necessary responsibility to do the hard work, to trim all of the pork, to eliminate all of the spending that pulls our nation away from its birthright to be the beacon of hope that it was designed to be. At the beginning of this series, we said, recovery begins with me, not with some you. Recovery begins with we, not with some they. We elected the people who got us into this mess so we can elect the people who will get us out of this mess. But those people that we elect need to be willing to do the hard, unpopular work that is necessary to return self-control and discipline to Washington. Now, digging out from a mountain of debt, especially one that's that big, is difficult. But it can be done. You see, we are one nation under God. And as, as a result, we're all responsible to participate in a national we the people recovery. And that national recovery will begin when we embrace the fiscal discipline necessary to become again a nation that lends, not a nation that borrows. As believers in Jesus... We know that a nation that lends and doesn't borrow is a nation that can be profoundly generous. And as the most blessed nation in the world, we should be the biggest blesser in the world. And if we can collectively decide to put aside all of our politics and all of our tribalism and all of the distrust that divides us, if we can decide to come together under our national motto, come together under In God We Trust, we can again become a blessing to the whole world. Because God honors that kind of obedience. God honors that kind of humility. And God will honor the nation that lives by faith in him. So what do you say? Let's become a nation that's no longer a slave nation. Amen? Let me pray for you. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. God, I lift up our community, our Hammock Street Ecclesia, the people that have gathered together to be part of this community, to be part of your movement here on earth. 
to be brothers and sisters coming from all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different ethnic groups and nations to come together under your banner. We're all believers. We're all followers. We're all people who belong to Jesus, sons and daughters of the Almighty God. So God, I ask for you to bless these people, to put it on their hearts, to take control of their situation in life, take control of their debts, take control of their spending, take control of the lives you've given them so that they can reapply your bounty to things that give you glory and bring you honor. God, we thank you for gathering us together today. We thank you for this opportunity. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.